Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Bubble Trouble, conversations between the independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's myself, and the economist and author Will Page, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. This week, we have the inestimable Dan McCrum from the Financial Times, whose diligent work single-handedly exposed one of the great frauds of recent years, the German payment processing company Wirecard. Captured in a jaw-dropping new book, Money Men, A Hot Startup, A Billion Dollar Fraud, and the Fight for the Truth, and also the subject of a fantastic new Netflix documentary, Scandal. Over this two-part episode with Dan, we'll delve into bursting of bubbles, how companies try to throw journalists off the trail, and how Dan persevered to single-handedly bring down a $30 billion market cap company and expose the German establishment being more inclined to protect its reputation than accept that one of its favorite sons was a total fraud. More in a moment. This week, we have a terrific special guest, Dan McCrum from the Financial Times. So buckle up. The story is a phenomenal one, and we want to dig into the different ways that Wirecard reflects the bubble trouble we see in the market, and equally, that gap between perception and reality that Dan had to work so hard to uncover. Dan, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Well, we'd like to start the podcast by giving you the microphone to introduce yourself, your work, the book, the movie. But really important is how our audience can find you. And just to be absolutely clear, full disclosure, our audience does include dodgy private detectives employed by the German state, and they really want to find you now. So you want to just introduce yourself and how we can follow your work? Absolutely, I will do. And uh, I think the private detectives already know where I live. So <laughs> my name is Dan McCrum. I'm an investigative journalist, and I write about companies that are up to no good for the Financial Times. And you can find me on Twitter at FD. My book, which you very kindly introduced then, is Money Men, a hot startup, a billion dollar fraud, a fight for the truth. And quite incredibly, I still pinch myself that this is actually happening. The documentary movie on Netflix has gone live. And uh, if you click onto the Netflix screen, you might see my face looking back at you, which is a very strange thing to experience. But it's also uh, incredible to share this story with the world. Demand for Pringles has gone up 40% for tonight alone. So it's going to be a big one. <laughs> and that one is called Scandal, the German spelling, bringing down Wirecard, which is really what the whole thing is about. This, this funny little tech company, which became one of the biggest 
most exciting tech giants in Europe and then was finally exposed as being a hollow, empty criminal enterprise. Wow. Well, the way I want to get into this conversation is to just be fully open about my favorite film of all time is All the President's Men. On IMDb, I've got a well-known list called All the President's Movies, to which I've just added Scandal, even though I've yet to see it. Looking forward to watching it tonight. But if I go back to my favorite movie, there's a great scene in there where the two journalists, Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein, realize they're onto something a bit bigger. And the editor's looking at them thinking, this isn't local, this is national. I'm going to give this to some top political writers. And the editor that's backing these two journalists up, in this case, the Paul Murphy of your story, says, come on, these guys have worked their butt off for this. To which the boss says, well, what have they done today? Rat shit in restaurants? And I think the line is, well, you got a few closed down. I just love that because it gives the personalities of the movie a background prior to taking down Richard Nixon. Now, I'd like to know what you were doing before you took down Wirecard. I'm presuming it's something a bit more exotic than taking down rat shits and restaurant stories. But, you know, I'm assuming you've never tackled anything this big. So give us the Dan McCrum story before you stumbled on this story. So I've been a journalist for about 15 years now. You know, I worked briefly in finance like a lot of people. Tried it, didn't really like it. Decided <laughs> I'd be a reporter instead. You had a life. Well, of course. And, you know, finding stories is just a fascinating, fun thing to do. You know, I don't really have to work for a living. And, and I started writing about, you know, lots of companies and then, you know, part of my job was writing about investors, you know, the big hedge fund guys. And as I was doing that, I started to get to know about this funny sort of characters in finance called short sellers. And what they do is quite unusual. They're different to, you know, most people in finance and business who are all trying to find the next big thing. You know, what's exciting? What's going to make us loads of money? Well, these guys are the cynics. They look for the companies who are going to go bust or who are overvalued or, you know, and maybe up to no good. And they kind of make for interesting characters. And I thought, well, they probably some stories here, right? So I started writing about what the short sellers were up to and some of the companies they were looking at. And, you know, so I wrote about a bunch of different sort of accounting frauds. It's slightly hard to name them because the UK has not got a very good track record of actually prosecuting any of these people. There's a number of them which were under investigation for some time. But so I wrote about a series of stories like that. And then I'm chatting to this Australian hedge fund manager one day and he says to me, hey, Dan, would you be interested in some German gangsters? That, I've got goosebumps just listening to this. <laughs> and that was my introduction to this funny little European tech company called Wirecard. And it was, it called itself the European PayPal. And it did something to do with moving money around, helping process credit card payments. And it turned out there were two theories about it. One was, it's a little bit fraudy. And the other was, well, hey, it moves money around. So it seems like maybe it's moving money for every kind of shady business that you might imagine online. And that was how it all started. Before we get into the detail of Wirecard, I want to step back because some of our previous podcasts, really when we, we came up with this idea of doing Bubble Trouble, we had episodes drawn from my own experience about equity analysts, and I call them sycophants and stenographers. You know, congratulations on a great quarter, and how should we think about payments in Europe 
in the future, Marcus. You know, that they are really there. They're paid promotional agents of the companies. And so what I'd like to ask you to think about is, is you know, the how did you overcome all of these conflicted agents that are working on behalf of the company, the 20 analysts that had buy ratings on Wirecard versus the two that had sell ratings, the PR companies that were there to put the story out directly to investors about how innovative this company was. I mean, how much were you just simply fighting against the conflicts of interest? And equally, the number of investors, and there's some cringeworthy videos out there, who were promoting in particular funds that Wirecard was precisely the kind of company they were looking for and as an example of their, their stock picking prowess. How much is this really about the conflicts in the market from these paid promoters? Well, I've got a bit of sympathy for equity research because I worked in the research department of a bank for a little while at Citigroup. And, you know, that gave me a little bit of insight into how the industry works, you know, how the sausage is made. And I think you have to understand that it's not really in the interests of stock market analysts to ask all questions. Their job there is to, you know, Assess which companies are worth buying and, by extension, the ones which aren't really worth buying. But they want to be friends to management. Their banks want to sell stock or bonds or, you know, do deals with these companies. So there's no point annoying them. But I also remember talking to, there was this terrific analyst at City called Tim Allen, who, uh, you know, had this shock of prematurely grey hair and had very strong opinions about most things. And I remember him saying to me, there is absolutely no point, you know, if you get a job as an analyst, writing a big sell note, certainly not as your sort of flagship first piece of research to say, hey, look at me, because nobody cares. Even if you're right and you save them money, they're not going to thank you because first you've got to tell them that they're wrong. You know, why did you buy that company, you idiot? You shouldn't be holding it. And I think that little bit of human nature is right at the heart of the problem here. Mm. Everyone in finance has an incentive for stocks to go up. Management, lawyers, bankers, analysts, traders, investors, they all fundamentally want the same thing. And this is how we get bubbles, right? Because everybody gets carried away. And so there are very few people who actually have, you know, a clear unfiltered interest in finding out the things that aren't going so well. We're going to take a break and come back with Democrom for part two. Back in a moment. Welcome back to the second part of Bubble Trouble with the esteemed author Dan McCrum, who has taken a huge scalp with the exposure of the fraud known as Wirecard. As someone who has run an independent research company for 22 years and has written many sell notes and oftentimes out of 40 plus analysts been the only sell on a stock that went down 40% in a day, it can be very gratifying. But I would say a couple of things and see what your reaction is. First of all, I think the phenomenon you describe is summed up in the famous quote by Upton Sinclair, never expect a man to understand something when his job depends on not understanding it. And I think that something we've talked about in multiple Bubble Trouble podcasts, indeed the one we did with your colleague Brooke Masters, is how for analysts, their job is almost certainly not to enlighten their clients. 
the last thing they want is a highly informed client who knows the value of something. It <laughs> makes it much harder to make money and better to uh, obfuscate and be duplicitous or, or not just not to know too much. Now, the interesting thing about short sellers is I think it, that discussion ought to be broadened out because, frankly, half the stocks in the market underperform. They're the half that don't go up as much or go down when the other ones go up more or go down by less. And really, the job of an analyst or anyone with integrity in the industry has to accept that and say, just like every fund manager does, I can't buy every stock. I have to pick the ones I think are going to go up more than the other ones. And I guess what I'm trying to get to is, in your experience, you certainly would have interacted with analysts. They would have read your stories. Weren't they cognizant that they should question themselves, that they might be on the wrong path? And if not, what do you think blinded them? Was it that they realized that their job depended on promoting these companies or that they just simply didn't want to know the truth that you might be, have been uncovering? Well, let me give you the most egregious example. So in late 2018, this little company, Wirecard, has become quite a big deal enters the DAX 30 index of Germany's largest listed companies. You know, its chief executive is strutting around on stages in a black turtleneck like he's some sort of Steve Jobs, you know, making all these pronouncements about the cashless society and how Wirecard is going to be huge and exciting and amazing. And while this is all going on, a whistleblower gets in touch with me and basically hands over a truckload of documents. And it's amazing. Finally, the truth about what's really going on inside the company, or at least a little bit of it. And so I work away for months, go through all the documents, and come out with this story. There's fraud going on in Wirecard's Singapore office. So the headline goes out. Within a day or two, we've knocked 8 billion euros off the value of the company. Jesus. And you're thinking, wow, okay, people have often wondered about the company. We're really cutting through. The day after the story, this research note from Comets Bank appears, written by this analyst, Hiker Pauls. And it literally says the FT story is fake news. You know, that old Trumpian epithet. From that usual suspect, Dan McCrum, there's clear indications of market manipulation. And I, when I first saw that, I genuinely thought it was a hoax. Did you so I call her up. The 1st of April? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I call her up to let her know there's this sort of hoax bit of research going around with her name on it. And she says to me, no, that's mine. I'm like, oh. what? So this evidence of market manipulation, like, what's all that about? And all she would say was, well, if it walks like a duck, it normally is a duck. And basically hung up and I'm like, well, that was strange. <laughs> And, the, I mean, and, you know, I'm not giving too much away here to say the amazing thing is that sort of large parts of Germany, including the establishment, kind of bought this lie from Wirecard that I was corruptly working with speculators. And I ended up being investigated by the German police. There was all sorts of things went on. But, you know, what was going on with Heike Pauls? And the best guess that I have is, you know, this was the line being fed by Wirecard. And if you've been mates with the chief executive for ages, you know, you've spoken to them all the time and they start spinning you this story, then maybe you believe it. 
you know. But again, that was, I think, the most extreme example I've ever come across of just black is white because that's what the chief executive said. But and I guess one of the things I wanted to dig into because I think it's so fascinating and difficult. It's hard for you as a journalist. It's hard for me as a research analyst. But there's always an information asymmetry. The companies always have more information. They hold the cards. They know what's really going on. And you're trying to unpeel layers of the onion, so to speak. But what was fascinating to me reading your book was the way in which they were constantly running these misdirection schemes. Oh, the fraud in the Singapore office is only a small amount. Oh, well, that was one bad apple in the management team and we got rid of him. Oh, that's, you know, that's just a bunch of speculators or market manipulators. And they they were so adept at getting agents of misdirection to, to carry their water for them. Did you ever get in a formal apology from Handelsblatt, <laughs> respected German newspaper, for having accused you of having the temerity to suggest that anything might be wrong at Wirecard when it turned out there was no there? Well, Handelsblatt just won an award for their podcast series about all about Wirecard. <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't um, sneak so good. I, you know, was that a self-reflection by Handelsblatt? Because they were on the other side. They simply were part of the scheme to misdirect investors well, away from the your reporting. I think that's a little harsh. I mean, I sat there scratching my head, wondering what on earth is going on with Handelsblatt. Because the German business newspaper of record seemed uninterested in the question of whether... Wirecard was a fraud and seemed content to sit on the sidelines munching popcorn because this fight with the Financial Times, which was maybe corrupt, was so fascinating and made for great cop. And so, so I don't think they did a very good job, but I wouldn't say they were complicitly part of the scheme on purpose. So as a reporter, you're always faced with these information asymmetries. The companies know all the facts, and you're trying to unpick a few of them. What gives you the intuition that, hey, I think there's really something here other than, in the case of Wirecard, clearly the visits to the offices that didn't exist or the, the shady characters that you encountered in your reporting? I mean, you, how do you decide that, indeed, we need to get behind this information asymmetry. We need to prize out some extra data because something here doesn't add up. So I had a couple of formative experiences as a journalist, one of which was the global financial crisis. So I was working in New York for the FT when that happened. And one of the big lessons that we all learned from that was things really should make sense. You know, finance is sometimes complicated, but when you boil it down, someone should be able to take you step by step through what is really happening here. And one of the big mistakes of the crisis was there were all these, you know, financial derivatives, weapons of mass destruction, financially, that sort of thing, which people didn't understand. Mm. And, you know, but one of my overriding memories of that whole crisis was the world had been going mad for a couple of months. You know, we were talking about, were the cash machines going to stop working? Mm. Banks were collapsing. The stock market Mm. was going completely crazy. So this all happened when Lehman Brothers goes bust in September 2008. Two months later, we're all exhausted. You're kind of 
what is going to happen next? And suddenly we start hearing these stories that the firm of Bernie Madoff can't meet withdrawals. Mm. And then suddenly this thing is a fraud. And you're suddenly like, hang on, wait a second. A $60 billion hedge fund is a total fraud? And it turned out this guy was sort of Wall Street royalty and everyone thought Bernie Mm. Madoff was amazing. When it turned out the entire thing was this enormous Ponzi scheme. And I remember at that moment thinking, well, we're through the looking glass here. Literally, it felt like anything could happen. But then it turned out that was sort of the peak of the madness for sort of me and lots of other people. But then you were, you know, I was left with this lesson that things can look incredibly important and prestigious and successful, whilst in reality, just being completely empty. And you discovered that, um, you know, there were a lot of rich people who thought they had very large sums of money looked after by this investing genius, Bernie Madoff. And every month, they would get their account statements, which were literally printed off a 1990s dot matrix printer. Mm. And the ability of the human mind to disconnect those two things never ceases to amaze me. So we have transatlantic fraud stories here. Now, Richard talked about how you peeled back layers of this story. And I want to be fully respectful for people who need to read the book and definitely watch the Netflix drama tonight. But how many layers would you like to peel back from your story to whet the appetite of our audience. Because when I watched you on stage at the FT Weekend Festival, this thing has got twists and turns to it. But let me give you the microphone to decide how much you want to lean into the wind in terms of giving away the conclusions. So what was amazing about Wirecard and what really convinced us that something was wrong was every interaction with the company was strange. So I write some stories about it. And then we start to realize there's a bunch of hackers trying to break into our email. And coincidentally, they also seem to be trying to break into the emails of other people who've been critical of Wirecard. And then guys start getting followed around by private detectives. Ouch, ouch, ouch. And there's this moment early on where I actually get to speak to the, the chief executive, Marcus Brown. And one of the great things about being a journalist is you get to ask people some very rude questions. So I ask him flat out, are you a fraudster? You know, what's going on with all these dodgy deals you're doing? And his words were sort of angry. You know, he said, that's bullshit. But he did a couple of things which liars do. Like, he answered with a question. Why would I do these things? (laughs) Why would I risk my reputation? You know, look at all the analysts who uh, think we're great. Look at the very highly reputed auditing firm, Ernst & Young, who sign off on our accounts. Surely they wouldn't be involved. A recent president of the United States had that technique as well. And what really struck me, though, was the tone. It was like he got asked if he was a crook every day. And he's like, oh, gosh, yeah, no, I get this question all the time. Here, let me explain while I'm not. And that was just really weird to me. That isn't even a taste of the madness because, you know, my boss got suffered a bribe to make the stories go away. And then we start getting investigated by the German police. And then we start to realize that, well, the main guy who's behind all of this seems to have a bit of a James Bond complex, and he's hanging out with Russian mercenaries and Libyan militia leaders. And it's at that point that you really start to think we're going completely mad. This can't be true. I think at that point, again, in my 
close to 30 years experience as an analyst, you deal with companies and you understand normal corporate governance. And you kind of understand the comms department and the PR side or the investor relations department and their role, and you understand the board and the structure and all that. But I guess this one of the things that at the apex of the collapse was the moment where there was no there there. There was no money in the bank accounts. And up till that point, that dot matrix printer had kept spitting out a bank statement that said, here's $1.9 billion or euros or whatever it was. So were there points in that process where you doubted yourself, where you said, well, we've hit the end of the line. The company keeps providing these statements. Obviously, there was some bank account, completely falsified, of course, that showed they had some assets, even if they were all their volumes were going through these three bizarre companies. Were there points at which you doubted yourself, okay, this corporate governance might not be normal, but maybe this is just the new way of doing things? Were you forced to question yourself the way you were asking everyone else who was a believer in the company to question themselves? So I always knew there was something up about this company. But like I said, there were these two theories about it. Is it money laundering? Is it fraud? And so that creates a lot of ambiguity. And I think it was a very useful ambiguity for Wirecard mm. because there were lots of serious professional investors who looked at this and I think told themselves, probably operates in some gray areas and it's probably very profitable. So maybe that's why it doesn't want to talk about the details of its business too much. But what I tried to do, particularly with the book, was bring out the human side of this, because even though I was convinced, I basically, at one point, gave up any hope of convincing other people. You know, so right. halfway through, you know, 2017, I was actually supposed to be doing a different job. I was writing about market for the mm. FT. Not particularly well, it turned out. And I was getting distracted <laughs> because sort of in the middle of the book, I've sort of done everything I can to try and draw attention to Wirecard. And the accountants sign off again, say everything's fine. The German authorities announce that they are going to investigate some of the short sellers who have criticized Wirecard. And the stock starts going to the moon. Mm. And meanwhile, I haven't been doing a great job at my writing about markets and exciting things like debt issuance. And I basically get demoted. And I sort of have to constant go and concentrate on, you know, trying to resurrect my career and not getting fired. And... I kind of assume, well, there are other stories out there which are easier. I'll just have to give up on Wirecard. And then it was only when this, this sort of miraculous thing, the whistleblower gets in touch and says, hey, I've got something for you. And holy mackerel, they did. Hmm. And that's when you need your friend Bradley, your editor, stand by you. And we'll come to that in part two. Before we close out part one, I, I, there's one story that you told on stage at the FT Weekend Festival, which I think we need to wrap up part one with, which is when you went to South, Southeast Asia to see the giant payment processing system that was Wirecard. Can you just walk us through approaching that door and finding out what was inside? <laughs> <laughs> so, so what we discover is that the heart of Wirecard's business are basically these three partner companies of Wirecard. With IOUs. And it turns out the story they've been telling everyone internally is, okay, yeah, so any like payments processing business which is too hot to handle for Wirecard, we'll send it over to our friends at these companies and they'll do the really nasty business. Our name won't be associated with it and they'll just send us back a big fat commission. 
And this was really good business. They were making a lot of money. And they hadn't told any, the outside world out about it. But thanks to our whistleblower, we had started to realise what was going on. So we sent my colleague Stefania Palmer to go and investigate. And she's going to knock on the door. And we don't know what she's going to find. So she drives sort of two hours north of Manila with her. We don't want to, to go alone. I mean, there it's might be gangsters th- there. It's a thriller in Manila. And so she goes with a photographer and a fixer. And she goes to the address, which on its website says this is a big international payments processing company. And the door opens into a courtyard. And the first thing she sees are two men with a Pomeranian on a A table. And they're giving it a haircut. (laughs) And there is no evidence of payment processing going on anywhere. See, I told you there's a human side and a canine side to this. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, in part two, I want to come back to that Ben Bradley story of just how the editor stood by you. So that wraps up part one with Dan McCrum, and we'll be back next week with a climax to the story in Dan's fight for the truth. If you are new to Bubble Trouble, we hope that you will follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Nett at Magnificent Narcs. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Will Page. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 